Good afternoon. Um, it's a, a great pleasure for me to introduce our guest of honor, um, the distinguished writer Amitav Ghosh. Many of you will be already familiar with his outstanding contribution to contemporary English literature. Um, he's the author of six highly acclaimed novels, including The Shadow Lines, The Glass Palace, The Hungry Tide, and his most recent novel, uh, Sea of Poppies, the first installment in uh, a projected trilogy called the Ibis Trilogy, which was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize in 2008. Amitav is also a, a very distinguished journalist and travel writer, and his nonfiction has been gathered into two collections, The Imam and the Indian and Incendiary Circumstances. But perhaps the most famous and justly celebrated of his non-fictional work is his inimitable travelogue come alternative history of Egypt in an antique land. That description, as many of you will know, does not even begin to do justice to this uh, generically complex and sophisticated work. It was here in Oxford that Amitav began the research that would eventually through a series of revisions and reworkings become in an antique land. So he has, like the others that we will hear about today, uh, left his own trace uh, in Oxford's archive. And In an Antique Land is a book that dwells on and inhabits the archive and considers the many traces uh, left by remarkable and unremarkable people alike. In fact, the last time I was actually here at the Bodleian, it was to read Amitav's PhD thesis, although he may not be thankful for that. Um, the first of those traces uh, that he's left uh, in this august institution. As the germ of In an Antique Land, you could say that, in a manner of speaking, his thesis is one of the most widely read in history, certainly most, more widely read than most. And it's also, in one sense, the beginning of a long and very distinguished and, in fact, remarkable intellectual journey. And I'd like to welcome you, Amitav, here on behalf of the Making Britain project to open this uh, workshop and exhibition. Well, thank you very much, Anshuman, for that very generous uh, introduction. And thank you, Elika, for inviting me here. It's really a great, great pleasure to be here. Uh, something uh, utterly uh, unexpected, I must say, uh, for myself. Uh, it was not, uh, I, 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 when I came here to study 32 years ago, I would never have imagined myself uh, opening an exhibition on Indian traces at Oxford. But, well, it's, it's, it's really a, a great pleasure and a privilege to be doing that. Um, you know, I'm not a person who dwells very much on the past, and nor am I a person who's, who finds themselves uh, very engaged with the lives of institutions. Uh, but uh, after Elika invited me, I started thinking really about Oxford and thinking about being at Oxford in a way which uh, I hadn't really uh, ever done before. And, uh, you know, the Oxford I came to 32 years ago, which was in 1978, uh, it was a very, very different moment uh, in, uh, in, in Britain. In a way, also, uh, 
not so different, perhaps, because it was a time of uh, economic crisis uh, in, uh, in Britain. It was, there was a sense of uh, horizons closing. There was a very uncertain sort of political leadership. There was a deep sense of gloom in the country. Uh, it was a time when uh, Tinker Taylor's soldier spy, uh, soldier spy uh, was being serialized on television. And I remember it was so exciting. Every week we'd go to uh, Teddy Hall and sit in the junior co in the common room. I forget whether it was JCR or MCR or whatever. And we'd sit there and watch this thing. And it was such a sort of elegy to a kind of declining imperial project and so on. Uh, it, it, so it was, it, it was at that kind of moment. And I'd also come from an India which could not have been more different than uh, India is today. Uh, it, it was just after the emergency, after Indira Gandhi's emergency. And uh, you know, that had, for me and my generation who were in college in India at that time, a deeply, profoundly radicalizing effect. And I was actually working uh, in a newspaper throughout the emergency, which is 75, 76, and I was working for the Indian Express, which was the only opposition newspaper. So, you know, I was very much involved in sort of uh, politics in Delhi and so on. But uh, it so happened that, uh, you know, I applied for a scholarship. I had no, I, I, I should not have got that scholarship. It was called the INLAC Scholarship. Uh, they took uh, eight people every year, and I was 10th on the list, you know, so, but somehow it happened that two people dropped out. So suddenly one day I wake up and I learn I'm going off to Oxford. Uh, so it was, it was kind of, the whole thing was kind of like a, like a fairy tale, really. It was kind of like a mysterious thing that happens to you and you don't really expect it to happen. Because I, I had no intention of being an academic. What I really wanted was uh, to travel, because you know, uh, I'd been reading Naipaul especially, but also James Baldwin, so many other writers, with this deep sort of interest and passion. And it seemed to me that I wanted to do what Naipaul had done and, you know, go and see the world and, and be in a lot of different places and so on. And in those days, if you were a young Indian, uh, you know, the chances of your being allowed to travel were very, very little. I mean, the only reason Indians left was to become, you know, coolies or something somewhere. So no one was going to give you a visa. The only way you could leave was if you, uh, through academics, you know. So, uh, you know, so it was in this hopeful sense that I applied for this, uh, for this scholarship, really just uh, wanting to travel. And there I was. I uh, ended up at Oxford, and I remember waking up uh, uh, on Manor Road and listening to undergraduates, uh, uh, drunken undergraduates walk past late at night laughing and thinking, my God, is this really happening to me? And it was incredibly exciting. But, you know, it was also incredibly unexpected. It was the things, every aspect of my experience here was in some way deeply unexpected. I had come from a Delhi University which was, and uh, I think still probably is, an incredibly vibrant place. It was a very, very vibrant place intellectually. There were these intense political engagements, but also there were these wonderful, absolutely inspirational teachers, some of, them, some of whom are today the great names in, uh, in, in, in world academics. Veena Das, uh, J.P.S. Oberoi, Tan Chung, these were amazing people, you know. And it's, it's a strange thing about Indian institutions. Everything is wrong with them. I mean, 
really they should, they should not exist. And our ministers of education are always telling us how terrible they are and so on. And yet, you know, I've never been to universities anywhere which are as exciting as some of our universities. It's one of the bizarre paradoxes. I was in Mauritius recently and there was this wonderful university with all the buildings looking absolutely perfect and you could see that everything happened on time. It was not at all like our Indian universities. And yet, the moment you're in it, you know that, you know, uh, the one thing you can't provide on order, really, is a kind of uh, intellectual vibrancy, which comes out, I don't know from what. I really don't know. Uh, and it's a mystery to me. Because it certainly doesn't, uh, didn't come altogether all from the teaching, but it came from something. And uh, so I arrived at Oxford, and you know, like everyone of my generation, my head was just fizzing with ideas and thoughts and uh, theories and thinking and books and so on. And I expected uh, that, you know, at, o at Oxford, the fizz would grow even fizzier, so to speak, you know, that I was coming to this great bubbling uh, sort of uh, fountainhead of intellectual energy. Well, that certainly was uh, <laughs> an unexpected thing because, uh, you know, I had the experience that I realized is now the almost universal experience of, Indian, of the Indian student, which is that you arrive at a place and you find that you're incredibly overprepared. Uh, you've read everything that they've read, and uh, you, then you don't know how to kill your time, you know. Uh, so, uh, you know, I was entered in a course called the Diploma for Social Anthropology. Uh, that was thought somehow the appropriate thing for me to do. It was a one-year course in anthropology. And uh, there I was, and, uh, you know, everything that they were teaching, uh, really, I had sort of read and knew, uh, more or less, already. So. It was a very curious thing, you know, um, because, you know, I sat there in, in the classes sometimes thinking, you know, I, I really can't be such a smart aleck and keep saying, well, you know, but you got this wrong and, uh, you know, that kind of thing, which you're always tempted to do, you know, and which in India, you know, as a teacher, uh, later when I taught in India, I realized this, and the, the, your students are always going to come at you like that, and you've just got to give it back to them, you know, and uh, it's sometimes a very adversarial relationship. But that's not how it worked over here, you know, you had to uh, be uh, quite quiet and uh, so on. And I, I remember an encounter with, uh, with the teacher, uh, he shall remain unnamed, uh, but uh, he, he wanted me to read something about, uh, you know, some really sort of dull anthropology of the 50s, Maya Fortes, which I, I had actually already read. And when he said, you know, my heart absolutely fell, and I thought, oh my God, I've got to read all this stuff about kinship among the Talensi, which I, which I already had to do. So, I, you know, rebellion bubbled up in me, as it has in so many uh, Indians before me. And I said to, my, I, I said to him, uh, you know, I really don't want to read that. What I want to read is, uh, I want to read Foucault, I want to read Bachelard, I want to read Adorno. I want to read all that. And you know, he was a very calm man, and he looked at me, and he looked away, and he looked at me, and he said, ah, as I was saying. <laughs> so, so, so it was back to Maya Fortes and the Talensi. And so, you know, I, I sort of soldiered on, and uh, uh, there you are. The other thing that was really surprising, and I think it'll be surprising in the context of today's England as well, and it was certainly a, an incredible surprise for, I think, my generation of students when we came, was the racism. Uh, I mean, this, this was, as I said, a very different moment. It was a moment of economic contraction. It was a moment of uh, 
you know, deep political uncertainty. But it's really hard to explain today, you know, how pervasive this racism was. Uh, it was like the water you swam in. I mean, the incidents were, they happened so regularly that at a certain point you, you just didn't keep, uh, keep any tally of it. There were never violent incidents, but you know, you remember that was the time of the skinheads and the uh, British National Party and so on. Uh, so even though the, the possibility of violence was always in the air, uh, you very rarely heard of uh, actual violence. It was usually just name calling. Uh, I mean, just today I was remembering as, as we came past, uh, at, uh, you know, Manor Road, just walking down there, you know, a car would stop, someone would roll down a window and, and shout, walk, go home. Uh, that was the usual kind of thing, uh, you know, but it would also happen in, uh, uh, you know, in other circumstances, on, on trains and things. It often happened in dealing with, uh, you know, the service people, post offices and uh, uh, dining room staff. But the curious thing was, uh, looking back on it, that it, th there were many such incidents also in the colleges. I remember, uh, in my uh, in my year, there was this uh, uh, a woman uh, studying political science. She was at New College, and she, there was matriculation, you know. And she uh, so all the colleges are there. I, I don't know if it's still the same uh, ritual or whatever. As far as I remember, all the colleges sit there. And she was at New College, and she got up to go and get her thing, and she was wearing a sari, and uh, I think there were we wore gowns over our clothes or whatever. And she was walking off to get it, and quite clearly, someone from her college shouted and said something like, walk, go home, or something like that. And the curious thing was that, uh, you know, uh, we all just ignored this. Everyone just ignored it. She, I think, just checked in her gate for uh, like one second and then went on. But there were other such incidents, you know, uh, rooms were broken into, there would be uh, vandalism. So, you know, uh, it was, I'm telling, telling, telling you this in a spirit almost of recounting science fiction because uh, uh, certainly I know that uh, almost 10 years later when I visited England, uh, it was completely changed. And of course, England today is completely changed. But that was, that was uh, uh, you know, uh, the world that we lived in at that, at, at that point. And it does make you think of what, it, what was it like for you know, these Indians whose traces we are seeing. I'm sure that they never faced anything like this because they were not uh, there in sufficient numbers. Even when uh, I was here, there were only about 30 Indian Indians. You know, there were uh, Indians from, uh, from Britain and Indians from America, but uh, Indians from India were very few in number, maybe uh, 20 to 30. But, you know, there was also, uh, even more than that, uh, sort of uh, these incidents of racism, there was a profound sense of otherness often, uh, you know, which is another thing which has completely disappeared. Uh, I remember a very close friend, uh, someone who became a very close friend, a very brilliant uh, Englishman, uh, who actually is now settled in India, you know. Uh, uh, well, uh, I won't tell you his name either, but uh, uh, the first day I met him, uh, it was in this Institute of Social Anthropology, and you know, we just exchanged a few words, and he was this incredibly generous, uh, sweet-natured person. And he said, well, come and have lunch with me. So I said, sure. He was at that time uh, living uh, a little outside Oxford. Uh, he was looking after uh, an old professor of the classics, uh, E.R. Dodds, whom some of you will know uh, from uh, the Greeks and the Irrational. Uh, so, you know, we started bicycling, and he was bicycling very, very slowly. So after a while, I said to him, I said, 
why are you bicycling so slowly? And he said, well, you know, I just wasn't sure that you'd ever seen a bicycle before. <laughs> you know, it was such an amazing thing. I mean, I, he remains to this day one of my dearest friends, you know. So what can you say? I mean, there was, there was an incredible sort of amount of sort of cultural negotiation, and it was a constant thing. And in many ways, it was a very exhilarating thing. And you know, as I, as I speak of all this uh, racism and the otherness and so on, uh, I, I want to say again that, you know, despite, despite or perhaps because of all this, we all, certainly I, enjoyed myself enormously. It was, it was just very exhilarating, you know. It was socially very, very, so it was socially very exhilarating. So, you know, it was, that's what I mean by saying it was so unexpected because you come expecting a great fountainhead of ideas, but what you get is a great fountainhead of parties. You know, and th that was what was fun. You know, that was what was really <laughs> enjoyable. I mean, we went to parties all the time. I drank lots of beer and, uh, you know, uh, the most wonderful thing, I mean, you would sit in the pub and have your tutorial and, uh, you know, uh, it was just so much fun. And at the same time, uh, this sense of being slightly at, uh, or considerably at an angle to the universe that you were in meant that uh, it, it quickened your senses and, uh, it was somehow very invigorating. Uh, and it makes me realize also that most of us who were here, we were certainly in Indian terms from middle and upper middle class backgrounds. So we were not accustomed to this. I mean, it's not that racism and you know, other kinds of uh, class hostilities and so on don't exist in India. That's far from the case. It exists everywhere. But it was not what we were accustomed to. Our world in Delhi, we knew it, we were accustomed to, to that, or in Bombay or Calcutta or wherever. So when you begin to experience these things uh, at a personal level, it has a deeply radicalizing effect, you know? And I think it did with many of us. It had this very powerfully radicalizing effect. So it was a radicalization that sometimes pushes you to the, to the left and sometimes to the right. And that's what I see now when I look at my generation, uh, you know, my cohort who went through Oxford. Uh, some uh, remain very much on the left and some have become uh, very much to the right. And it's a curious thing, it's as if it removes the middle ground. You know, that's what's interesting uh, in a way about that, uh, about that particular experience. But I think it's also very true that this was a period when I look back now, it was before the moment of identity politics. So, Certainly for me and for many people that I knew, you never conflated your personal experience with your idea of what a place is, you know? So for me, the fact that someone might say, uh, you know, uh, go home, walk, uh, that you've experienced this one, once or twice, doesn't mean that you think that all of England is like that, you know? Uh, it was possible for one to make this complete uh, distinction. So, you know, I went hitchhiking around England once um, and it was, Incredibly exciting. I mean, uh, on one day, I remember in Devon, in uh, rural Devon, I, I got about six rides. And of those six rides, every single person had spent uh, over 10 years in India. You know, they were mainly older people, but, you know, and, uh, you know, they would invite me home, stay here. It's, it's, it's a kind of story that uh, English people tell about India, you know. I mean, you go there, everyone's feeding you and saying, stay in my house. <laughs> so. Britain has changed a lot since then, and it's been very, very 
it's been amazing to watch this transformation, to watch the ways in which um, you know, England has uh, uh, really effected some kind of uh, a, tra a transition, uh, if you like. But I think it's the, the, the transformation is not only on the British side. Uh, the transformation is also on the Indian side. You know, as an Indian, when you step out in the world today, and I say this particularly to the younger people here who won't have known the, the experiences that we went through so much, but as an Indian, when you step into the world today, the world is a very different place. And it's different not because of you, but because India itself displaces more water. It's because India itself commands more respect. You know, uh, and that is really a very, very significant change in the ways in which uh, uh, we step out in the, you know, in the world now. But I want to come back also to the academic aspect of my experience for a minute. Uh, I said before that, uh, you know, in terms of reading and so on, uh, we were certainly uh, abreast of what was happening here. But what was very important for me personally was that the Institute of Social Anthropology had a couple of uh, figures who could relate very well to my own particular interests. And I, real, I realize now that this was, in a way, a kind of miraculous thing, because I was not at all academically inclined, really. That was not where my interests lay. That was not uh, you know, uh, my project as such. But anthropology at Oxford historically had this kind of literary foundation. Uh, there was Evan Spritchard here, who really saw himself as a writer, uh, more as a writer than as a social scientist. In fact, it was never thought of as, as a social science, at least uh, in, the, in the Oxford of those days. And I was very, very fortunate in that I, uh, I encountered uh, two uh, professors there, Peter and Godfrey Leonhardt, who had both been students of F.R. Leavis. So they were basically literary people. And they recognized in me that you know, my own ambitions were much more in the literary direction than in the social scientific direction. And they really nurtured this and encouraged this. And now when I look back and I think, you know, th this was perhaps the only place in the world that I could have done what I did, uh, really, because any other place, uh, you know, I would have left after a year or two, you know, with some other sort of degree. But uh, they really uh, did persuade me to stay around and uh, uh, to, do, uh, to do a PhD. Uh, and my DPhil I did in literally uh, two and a half years uh, because, you know, my funding was going to run out and, you know, uh, that really lit a fire under me, so I had to sit and do it. But it, it was a wonderful thing, and uh, Peter Leonhardt was my supervisor, and I still remember to this day, uh, uh, all our meetings with him were at the King's Arms. Not this King's Arms, there was another King's Arms uh, way down near Banbury. And we would always meet in the pub. And one day, uh, just as I was starting my work, I thought, well, I must talk to him about uh, you know, what books I should read and what bibliography. I mean, I'm, isn't that what you're meant to do when you're a graduate student? So I said to him, I said, Peter, you know, uh, do you want to suggest a bibliography or something? And he looked at me, and he raised his eyebrows, and he said, you know, I hope you don't think that I'm going to be a guru kind of person to you. <laughs> and that was literally the last academic conversation we ever had. <laughs> so, you know, it was because, really, it was because of Peter, it was because of Godfrey, and it was because of the peculiar ethos of uh, the, uh, the Institute of Social Anthropology in that period, an ethos that I cannot imagine exists today or would have existed at any other moment uh, in the history of uh, that particular discipline. 
It was because of that that I was able to go to Egypt, I was able to write my thesis and so on. And that was for me a, a genuinely life-changing event because being in this village in Egypt, it was uh, you know, uh, this incredibly powerful experience for me. And, Ultimately, I had to write this book uh, in an antique land to get it out of my head. Well, I want to also talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the cohort of Indians I was with at Oxford, because I think, uh, especially looking back on this traces of uh, Indians at Oxford thing, it made me think about this very much. Uh, in a way, um, my generation must have been the last to see uh, really the leftovers of a kind of 19th century Indian relationship with Oxford. Uh, so uh, let me explain that. In the past, uh, the Indians who came to Oxbridge were, in a way, willy-nilly sort of Anglophiles, you know. They were aspiring to higher positions within the Raj, or they were from traditional Indian elites, and, or they were from, uh, you know, poor families. The entire village had saved money so that they could go and uh, get a degree and join the civil services and make their way, way up. I mean, in fact, I mean, the Raj was a really tough place for Indians to, uh, to manage. So this was one of the ways in which they could. But today's Indian student is much more a product of meritocracy and much less connected uh, with the traditional elites. It's, it, it's one of the most, to me, the most invigorating things in India, that the traditional elites, their influences has almost completely dissipated, especially in southern India. And you really see this kind of real sort of meritocratic energy that's unleashed within these uh, educational institutions. And I think it's one of the most uh, exciting things to see uh, in today's India. But my generation was kind of interstitial. Of, of, of about 30 Indian, Indian Indians who were here then, uh, I'd say uh, about, a, about half were from traditional elite families. And they were squarely in the sort of Nehru tradition, you know. Uh, of, that, of, of the 30, there were at least five who were definitely going to be prime minister. Uh, you know, they decided whether they were going to be prime minister or president or law minister or something. Uh, uh, the, uh, then there were the rest were actually squarely from the meritocracy. And I would say that I was uh, in, more in that stream than in the other, having, you know, made my way here through that. But this made for a very, very interesting mix. You know, um, the meritocratic types who were often technocratic, I mean, they, they were in mathematics or economics and so on, they got sick of Oxford very quickly, uh, you know, especially the economists. I don't know why, because they were sort of like major number crunchers and they couldn't find uh, people to crunch numbers with them. And they almost left, uh, uh, they left en masse for, for America as soon as they could. But the others uh, hung around and it was really interesting. I mean, you'd see them, uh, you know, uh, literally jockeying for position, already positioning themselves in relation to each other and to their future ambitions. But it's a sign of how much India has changed that, in fact, uh, none of them have really been able to uh, make it anywhere uh, really high in politics. Though some of them are actually uh, fairly high up in the political world, but more, more of them tended to veer off in the end towards journalism. And then there were some, and I think this must be absolutely the last, ours must have been absolutely the last of that dwindling breed, for whom being from Oxford, being an Oxonian, was itself a career, you know? 
that was your career when you went back to India, that, you know, I'm from Oxford. And you can see, <laughs> you can see how in the 19th century, this must have been a major career with major returns. And it was, it's extraordinary to this day I meet these guys who I know for a fact were dreadfully unhappy at Oxford. They had no friends, they would go back to India all the time. And now, all the time, they're talking about how much they love cheese and pot and this and that. And it's, 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 it's an amazing set of things to see. Uh, it becomes, as you see, uh, Oxford became, as it were, their social capital. And uh, it's, you know, some people really parlayed it uh, to very great advantage. Um, for me, I must say, uh, Oxford was uh, an interlude. It was a, an enormously enriching experience. It was an enormously enabling experience. And in, a, in as much as I went uh, to Egypt, it was also uh, a sort of life-altering experience in the way that it has been for Indians of early, earlier generations. But it also made me think very much about this experience. And it was much later, especially when I, um, when I went to write about Cambodia, that I really began to think about it very, very hard. And I realize now that this particular platform, this platform of the third world student in uh, this foreign circumstance, it's one of the critical uh, uh, forums of the 20th century. You know, this was where a very large part of 20th, 20th century experience was formed. Uh, if you think of Pol Pot, uh, you know, he becomes radicalized at the Sorbonne. Q Sampan, his, uh, his classmate, slightly older classmate, they get these ideas, then they go back, and then they effect this kind of really radical transformation, genocidal transformation of, um, of Cambodia. You know, but uh, that's just one example. But, uh, you know, from the Indian aspect, you have uh, Nehru on the one hand, but you also have Subhash Bose, you have Rajni Pamdat. So it's a very unpredictable thing. It's not that people go to Oxford and become, as it were, uh, anglicized, which is what people thought. It's, I think, what this experience does is more that it pushes you towards extremes. You know, it pushes you towards ex extremes of, say, Aurobindo Ghosh or Subhash Bose, you know. And uh, that in itself, I think, is something that is a very curious thing and something that really deserves a, a long-term study. For myself, I must say that having seen this, having seen this process of, uh, how shall I say, being pushed towards extremes, which happens, I think, only within this partic particular kind of expatriate circumstance where, in a way, you don't have to watch uh, the reality of your words or, or the reality of what your words might uh, achieve in your, uh, in your own setting, that you do have the license to, as it were, uh, go off at the deep end, you know. So the, the interesting thing today is that India finds itself in the, very, in the same position. Uh, JNU, um, the Nepali Maoists uh, were formed in JNU, you know, and it's so interesting to see how they themselves are sort of, in some way, uh, reenacting, you know, these earlier these earlier um, uh, traces. I mean, you see them uh, at, in one sense, they feel this sort of close connection with India, but that close connection also becomes the foundation often for a very deep hostility and a very deep uh, sense of rassentiment, uh, if you like. Anyway, I've gone on for quite a long time, so I'll stop there. Thank you very much.